Just one day before Jonathan Stapley was awarded the Best Book Award for The Power of Godliness by the Mormon History Association, I visited with him about the history and development of core ideas essential to current Mormon identity, such as priesthood, authority, and ordinances. We also discussed how priesthood power relates to temple practice and what Jonathan refers to as the ordering of heaven. His volume is an academic history of Mormonism, and as such, its intent is to understand and analyze the past and contextualize and historicize the present. On this episode, Jonathan Stapley shares his perspective on Latter-day Saint liturgy in theory and practice. Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. Hello, this is Laura Harris-Hills, and I'm here today with Jonathan Stapley to talk about his book, The Power of Godliness, which was published by Oxford Press, and I think it was January of 2018. Jonathan, can you tell us just a little bit about your educational background? So I'm a trained chemist. I have a PhD in carbohydrate chemistry from Purdue University. I did my undergraduate studies at BYU in food science. So I deal with what's called electrochemistry. That's using electricity instead of chemicals to change sugars into other useful products. And you write in Mormon studies. How did that happen? (laughs) Well, after I finished my uh, dissertation in 2004, um, I created a company that industrialized my graduate work. And I was focusing more on managing individuals and ideas as opposed to actual research. And just at that time, institutions, including the church, began digitizing their collections. And it was blogs were just becoming online. And uh, I was part of a group of people that were starting to access these materials and do research, kind of a new generation in the 2000s. And being a scientist and interested in systems, um, I applied my interest and love of our church to that same uh, study. So what is Mormon liturgy? Okay, so Uh, We are accustomed to talking about ordinances and priesthood in our church, but those words have a particular meaning within our faith that is peculiar. It's different than the way those words are used outside of our tradition. There is a technical and scholarly approach to ideas of worship and ritual that exists, um, and so I'm using... Um, those frameworks and bringing them into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And so what liturgy is, um, liturgy is the system of ritual and ritualized acts that believers participate in to um, mark occasions and celebrate and worship. So on uh, Sundays, for example, we go to sacrament meeting and participate in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And that is the liturgy of the Lord's Supper. Now, if you are Roman Catholic or Orthodox or Jewish, um, you will be familiar with those terms because they're part of the regular worship. They talk about the liturgy. Um, But for us, it's a little disorienting, I think, um, because we're not exposed to that vocabulary. Sometimes we talk about high church and low church. Mm Mm-hmm. So even though we're technically, quote-unquote, low church, we have liturgy like the Catholics who would do it maybe with more ceremony. Yeah, for sure. And, and of course, our tradition is complicated by the fact that we have the temple and the temple liturgy. But for sure, if you were to talk about the baptismal liturgy or baby blessing or the healing liturgy of the church— Um, Those are all systems of worship and ritualized acts that are as every bit as liturgical as the Roman Catholic Mass. What got you interested in church rituals and liturgy? Um, That's a good question. I am 
I've, I'm a scientist by training and have always had kind of a scientific approach to the world. Chemistry is very much, when I look at a tree, I look, I think of the biochemistry that's happening in the tree as much as I look at the beauty of the foliage. As much as we don't use terms like liturgy or sacrament, Latter-day Saints believe that they're doing something. You know, when we baptize somebody, we're doing something. It's changing the world. It's changing the universe, really. And I'm interested in, I'm deeply, fundamentally interested in the systems and the worlds that we create, um, that people create generally, but as a believer and as someone who, like, if you cut me, I bleed it. It's been part of who I am. And so I'm, I'm interested deeply and fundamentally in how what we do changes the world and why it matters. I think a lot of members of the church can identify with bleeding Mormonism or Latter-day Saintism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's hard to think how you would live if you remove that component from your intellectual being. Yeah. How about cosmology in a religious studies right, so connotation? Cosmology is the study of the origin and development of the universe. And you've got physicists that are experimental and theoretical probing the universe for black holes and dark matter. Um, but cosmology is uh, something that is far more ancient and expansive than um, the modern science the idea that God so loved the world that he sent his only son is part of the water we swim in, the air we breathe. But the word world is cosmos. And so God so loved the cosmos. And this cosmos was not just the sphere on which we stand or that's population. It encompassed the physical reality, yes, but also the spiritual planes with its hierarchies of angels and demons and incorporated the astral heavens. It incorporated spiritual and physical realities, um, systems of authority, kingdoms, principalities. It is a vision um, of the whole of things. That's the cosmos. And cosmology is the kind of study of or the science of this reality. And so... Um, I think every Mormon probably is aware of, you know, the plan of salvation diagrams. You know, you've seen the pictures of the spheres where you start in a spirit world and you have a mortal existence and then the arrows point to spirit prison and there's three heavens. That's essentially a cosmology. Okay. And what I'm doing and hopefully in an empathetic way, is to approach the cosmology of Latter-day Saints, because not only does the church change from between the time uh, my children um, attend to our church to when my grandparents did, but also the way we view things changes somewhat as well. Um, and that's, that dynamism is the living aspect of the church, but it also um, poses interesting challenges because as cosmology shifts, it becomes more and more difficult to understand the past. When I read your book, I had several aha moments that were really, really helpful to me. And I want to just even start this podcast by saying thank you for helping to clear up some of this confusion for me. That's extremely gracious. Thank you. Let's start with a brief historical overview during the Joseph Smith period, how set was Latter-day Saint liturgy? It, it wasn't set at all, in fact. So what we have is the revelation of a few rituals. In fact, the very first revelation of the organized church is what is called the Articles and Covenants. And that's what is now section 20 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And it's basically the first general handbook of instruction. It was called the Mormon Creed by observers because it has creedal elements to it, but it lists, you know, baptism, um, confirmation or the laying on of hands to receive the Holy Ghost, ordination um, rituals and baby blessings and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. So here we do these things. It draws largely from the Book of Mormon about how to perform them. There's a prayer for ordination, um, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And that's it, 
right? Um, so we have a baptismal prayer, but as anybody who has experienced a baptismal service today knows, there are things we do that are not necessarily described in the prayer. So, for example, we have white clothing, we have witnesses, we have a talk on the Holy Ghost, I guess, and on baptism, and we have a fairly set way of doing this. But during Joseph Smith's lifetime, baptism was pretty chaotic. There were many ways of doing baptism. Um, You could be baptized multiple times. You could be baptized as a healing ritual, um, baptized for your health, as well as for the dead. How we heal, how we ordain, um, all of these things, we have an idea, but how we actually do it is developed over time and by doing it. So you learned how to bless the sick by doing it with people that were also learning at the same time. And so how to do it and what it meant was fairly dynamic. Um, This is in contrast, perhaps, and maybe we can talk about this a little bit as well, is um, some of the established churches at the time had very formal liturgies. So, for, the, for example, the baptismal liturgy of the Methodist Church, which is outlined in the Methodist Discipline, which was kind of their handbook of instructions, we share essentially a, a very similar prayer, baptismal prayer, but they have hundreds of words on before and after kind of explaining that you have to read and setting it up and giving meaning to this moment um, and framing it. And so for, you know, 100 years, Methodist baptism was fairly static. But for Latter-day Saints, that is definitely not the case. When I was reading about the history of the early history of setting up these ordinances and how they performed them, to me, it sounded a lot like inspired pragmatism. So that first writing down of the Mormon creeds, as you called them, and they're just taking what they have at their hand, the Book of Mormon. Okay, yeah. what did what they do here? And then you mentioned that by 1835, they're looking at publishing Joseph's first revelations in a book, and they actually kind of changed some of these first things that they wrote down about the cosmology. You want to speak to that? Sure. I think um, the idea that Joseph Smith's revelations were edited and changed should largely be uncontroversial um, because of the work of the Joseph Smith Papers Project. So Joseph Smith has manuscript revelations. He dictates revelations. Um, in some few cases, they're um, written down with his uh, as, as part of a collaborative effort. As new revelations are received, some old revelations um, are essentially revised to comport to the new understanding. You see this first with the furtive attempt to publish revelations in 1833 with the Book of Commandments. So in Independence, in Zion, they want to publish a book of revelations. The press is destroyed and there's only a handful of copies. By the way, if you have one, they're worth over a million dollars, so don't throw them away. Joseph Smith keeps having revelations. Um, So the idea, for example, that there is a Melchizedek priesthood and an Aaronic priesthood, which is, again, in the water we swim in and the air we breathe today, that was revealed in 1835. So five years after the church is formed, Joseph Smith reveals the idea of an Aaronic priesthood and a Melchizedek priesthood. And the revelations on priesthood that were given in 1831, 32, are harmonized with these new revelations and then published in the Doctrine and Covenants. The 1835 uh, Doctrine and Covenants is the first edition of the Doctrine and Covenants, and it essentially crystallizes Joseph Smith's revelations. They, they are no longer edited um, once that's published, largely because it's published widely, and um, it becomes sort of an anchor for those texts. We have these different periods in the church that we talk about, which are somewhat artificial. We have the Palmyra period. We have the translation. We have the Kirtland period, where we have all this revelation pouring forth. We have the Missouri period, where the church is just trying to not dissolve, and Joseph's trying to keep his skin. And then we have the Nauvoo period, where Joseph 
didn't really have a lot of revelations that we have in the Doctrine and Covenants, but most of his doctrine was done either one-on-one, secretly, like with polygamy, or in speeches that he gave, in, in addresses, in talks, in conference. The most famous probably is in a funeral speech that he gave. So during the Nauvoo period, right before he died, Joseph was still revising his cosmology. By the time of his death, how well were Joseph Smith's views on cosmology articulated to the members of the church? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And as you say, written revelations are rare in Nauvoo, but clearly Joseph Smith's revelation is not rare in Nauvoo. He is remarkably consistent in his explanation of what I call the Nauvoo cosmology, this, these new ideas that are revealed in conjunction with the Nauvoo Temple Liturgy. So you mentioned, uh, I think you were alluding to the famous King Follett discourse of the King Follett sermon, which actually was, um, it was memorialized to King Follett, who was a man in Nauvoo who died. A stone fell on his head while he was digging a well. But it was actually a general conference sermon. It was um, April 7th, 1844. And it is Joseph Smith's best documented sermon. So if you have a copy of the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, which um, from today's modern perspective, um, it probably isn't the best source for Joseph Smith's teachings because it's um, been filtered through um, several layers of um, editorial handiwork, but is nevertheless the most reliable sermon we have from Joseph Smith. Typically, you have three to five different sets of um, notes Scholars call them audits. So these notes that people were taking in situ or in the moment, they independently witness Joseph Smith's specific teachings throughout the sermon. It's important to note that uh, this sermon was somewhat controversial because you had um, folks like previous First Presidency member William Law, who has left the church and views it as wildly scandalous. But Joseph Smith, the key teachings of the King Follett sermon, Joseph Smith has been teaching publicly Um, Since 1839, since the first year that they are in Illinois, Joseph Smith is teaching the concepts that end out in the King Follett Sermon. One of uh, the most notorious uh, teachings in Mormonism has been um, what folks refer to often as the Lorenzo Snow Couplet, um, as man is, God once was, as God is, uh, man may become. Um, Actually, uh, Lorenzo Snow probably isn't the first person to come up with that a little couplet. Brigham Young is attested to teaching it very, very early. And I would say that people have often projected that couplet onto the King Follett sermon and is probably the the best source for that idea in Joseph Smith's cosmology. But I would argue that it doesn't find a home in Joseph Smith's cosmology. Joseph Smith's cosmology is more complicated than that simple little couplet. So what does Joseph Smith actually teach um, in Nauvoo? Perhaps the best documented teaching is that spirits were never created or made. So he, this is a direct quote, God never had the power to create the spirit of man at all. So we have uncreated spirits. The next idea to go along with that is that God found himself in the midst of the spirits and wanting them to progress, interacted with them and revealed a plan to them to help them increase. From there, uh, we go to the idea that what is the history of God? Now, Joseph Smith dramatizes this. If you were to pull back the veil from heaven, you would see God sitting in throne um, in the very form and image and person of a man. I'm paraphrasing, but these are um, close paraphrases that people might recognize if they've read the sermon. But he did not stop there. He did not say God was a man. He said God was in the very form and image of man, and that he lived on a planet once as Jesus lived on a planet um, and went and extended this to say that what did Jesus do? He did what he saw the Father do. As Jesus laid down his life and picked it back up again, so did the Father. And this is a teaching, again, that goes back to the early years 
of Nauvoo. And lastly, and this is perhaps somewhat controversial because Joseph Smith was not explicit in his teachings publicly. He publicly claimed that human exaltation was to become kings and priests to God, to become gods, if you will, but to become gods by uh, becoming a king and priest to God. Several weeks after the King Follett sermon, he gave what some scholars have called the Sermon in the Grove, where he revisits this idea of a plurality of gods because it's so controversial. And he says, look, I've always said there was God and Jesus, right? There's two, at least. (laughs) Jesus, by his own blood, hath made us kings and priests to the Most High God. So he's revealed that that's clearly an allusion to the work of the temple. So in the temple, the purpose is to make people into kings and priests. What he doesn't state publicly is the female corollary to that, that women are to be made queens and priestesses. Um, And by extension, that God the Father reigns in heaven with a mother God. So those ideas about a feminine deity and the feminine um, corollary to exaltation is not stated publicly, but um, Smith's closest associates rapidly talk about it publicly after he dies. He also um, clearly talks about the temple liturgy in terms of priesthood. He tells the Relief Society in 1842 that he intends to make them a kingdom of priests. So the evidence is there for this. This final idea is what most people have latched onto, church leaders, church members, observers, um, because perhaps they are so powerful. We want this idea of human exaltation that we um, don't spend as much time thinking about the other aspects of Joseph Smith's cosmology, the uncreated spirits, the idea that God was a man, yes, but a man like Jesus was a man. It's more complicated and, and rather ignored. I want to go back to something you said just right now. You were talking about how some of the members who listened to these teachings found them blasphemous. So I think to understand that, we need to put his teachings in context against existing Judeo-Christian traditions. Because to us, it just seems normal. Of course, we grow up learning that our Heavenly Father organized the spirits, but that's a huge departure from God creating man. Yeah, so it's it, it's complicated because um, what we generally assume today or are taught today is not necessarily um, exactly what Joseph Smith is describing in Nauvoo, And it's clearly not what, as you say, the Orthodox Christianity is at the time. Standard Christian thought is that God transcends everything, that he has existed forever, which I think Joseph Smith would have agreed with, but that God created everything, including all physical matter, including human spirits. Joseph Smith is militating against one of the fundamental premises of Christianity. And this is where Christian, Orthodox Christians generally, or creedal Christians generally point to demonstrate that we are not part of their team. If a Calvinist were to argue why Mormons are not Christian, they would point here. Because if God did not create all things out of nothing, then it's not the same type of being. So this is uh, radical. Are you saying like he's kind of less divine? Um, I, so I don't think Joseph Smith is making that argument. He's just saying I, I'm that thinking it, like the Calvinist. Yeah, the and, Calvinist and would definitely it. argue that. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Like a traditional Orthodox um, Protestant would definitely make that argument. I mean, Joseph Smith's relationship with creeds is interesting. With Orthodox Christianity, it's interesting. He rejects fundamentally certain premises that have governed Christianity for hundreds of years, if not thousands. That being said, a lot of scholars have pointed to early Christian beliefs that match up well with Joseph Smith. I'm not an expert in that area, but clearly in the antebellum American context, Joseph Smith is ruining things. (laughs) (laughs) That's really clever. So Joseph Smith sets out this cosmology. What do subsequent leaders of the church do with these teachings? For the most part, they ignore them. The one area that they don't is is the one area where we don't have a lot of public 
or no public documentation of. And that's the idea of this gendered and eternal dyad of male and female in exaltation and in divinity. So this idea of a mother God or a mother in heaven, that has legs. The idea of a divine mother God and female exaltation is interpreted differently among different church leaders, but is still a foundational piece of their cosmology. The ideas about uncreated spirits and um, God the Father being a man like Jesus was a man is essentially ignored. There has been a lot of work um, demonstrating, for example, Orson Pratt's um, and Brigham Young's conflict over Joseph Smith's legacy in this area. Um, They disagreed emphatically with each other. Brigham Young is somewhat controversial in his interpretation and innovation and how he interprets the cycle of exaltation, but it becomes the engine for Utah-era belief in a large measure. Personally, it doesn't bother me so much that subsequent leaders didn't opine on it because it was Joseph Smith's revelation, and it was written down secondhand. He he didn't review it, and we see later when we're going to talk about the Utah period where they're just trying to fit it all together, and that was just one cog in the wheel that they just said, we're not going to touch that one because we just don't know, maybe. But yeah, and, and whereas the 1835 Doctrine and Covenants is a textual anchor, and you see for hundreds of years church leaders going back to those texts and reading them and working out what they mean, you did not have that same accessible corpus of Joseph Smith's teachings available to work through. You simply it, They simply weren't available. So oftentimes they were going from memory. It's only been, you know— in the 20th century, and really um, in the last 10 years that we've had the critical apparatus to deal with them in an appreciable way. Let's review how the temple ceremony was revealed. 1842, Joseph Smith reveals the temple ceremony in the Red Rick building to a few of the apostles, some select priesthood leaders, but it isn't revealed fully to the church until after his death. Joseph Smith is killed at Carthage. The temple is completed. The leaders of the church are anxious to get temple work done before they have to leave Nauvoo because of persecution. This is a lot of pressure on Brigham Young, and he is wanting to get this temple ceremony right, as he basically says, because it's given to him orally. Nothing's written down. How did this temple ceremony change, do we know, from when it was given in the Red Brick Building to during Brigham Young's presidency? I guess we can talk about the temple liturgy and aspects of the temple liturgy. So what we have um, during Joseph Smith's life are these oral instructions. True. But we also have the 1842 sealing text. So um, this is a revelation uh, that Joseph Smith gives to the Whitney family, introducing the concept of eternal sealings. It includes a sealing ceremony that is divergent from um, later texts that are the basis for what we um, experience today in the temple. We have, in 1842, Joseph Smith revealing the endowment ceremonies or the, the the initiation and the endowment ceremonies to a group of men in 1843 in the fall. So a year and a half later, he brings in women. By doing that includes different administrators. We now have women performing temple um, rituals and bringing the ideas um, together in a, a cohesive, what they called a um, quorum, Um, a group of people that met together as men and women. They prayed, they performed the temple liturgy for new initiates, and it had a president. Joseph Smith was the president of the temple quorum. And then Emma was over the women, right? Yeah, so she's the first woman to be initiated into the temple quorum um, to experience the liturgy. So you have this diffuse liturgy that's oral, that incorporates, again, Sealings and people were generally sealed before they experienced the endowment at that period. Um, an initiation, a washing and anointing, an endowment, or a dramatic presentation. There are associated 
rituals, prayer, and as well. So from Joseph Smith's um, revelation of this kind of diffuse liturgy, we go to the temple. It's finished. Brigham Young and the Quorum of the Twelve introduce it to the body of the saints, where we have—this is now when we have thousands of people participating in the temple. It is clear— um, we have the documents, for example, that new characters are added to the dramatic liturgy, um, the, this presentation where they describe the plan of salvation. Um, new characters are added. The actual texts for things like sealing are adapted at this time. One important piece of what's happening is what work the temple is doing. So what does the temple do? And Joseph Smith was creating heaven on earth. So ceilings were literally constructing heaven. Heaven wasn't a place in Nauvoo that you went if you were righteous. It wasn't the gift to the elect. Joseph Smith set it up. He said, you know, it's not what the Calvinists are doing and it's not what the Methodists are doing. Heaven is something that we build. And so when he performed ceilings, he was... Again, I'm not using literally figuratively here. He was literally creating heaven. He was making it. It was a material thing. I've been studying Nauvoo polygamy for five years now. And you're talking about Joseph Smith making heaven on earth now. It's not something in the future. For me, that was a big, oh, that's why these women and men are agreeing to this whole concept of polygamy when we, we scratch our heads at why they would even go there. But they're not seeing, oh, in heaven, I can get sealed to someone. They're saying, no, I need to be sealed into the chain now. Am I characterizing this correctly? Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's hard for us to imagine from today's perspective, but for the entire 19th century, essentially, you basically didn't perform ceilings for people that weren't church members. Now, there's interesting exceptions and some gender dynamics that complicate that a bit. But the idea was that ceilings, because they materialized heaven— persevered. And that's a theological term that means they they were real. They endured in spite earth and hell. And if you want to construct heaven in this community we have together, um, if you were to go to your ward and say, we're going to build heaven and we need to be connected to each other, there's not a lot of ways of doing that that don't transgress our Victorian norms. You have interesting connections between people that look very strange from an observer's perspective and from a believing observer's perspective. We should look at this and think, this is odd. You mentioned that Joseph was making heaven on earth, but it changed. How did it change? If you are a reader of the Doctrine and Covenants, we still have section 132 in um, our canon, which is a very complicated document, but clearly teaches the idea of perseverance or this idea that once you're sealed, the sealing cannot be broken unless you sin against the Holy Ghost. When you have a small group, a small community where everybody trusts each other, these ideas of perseverance, this idea that we are going to literally build heaven are somewhat easier to manage than when you make the temple liturgy accessible to thousands and tens of thousands. Brigham Young opens the temple, thousands are endowed and sealed, and they go to Utah and they perform ceilings along the trail west. They perform ceilings in Salt Lake, in offices and homes before the council house is built, then in the council house, then in the endowment house, then in the pioneer temples. The challenge is that just because you go to the temple and experience the liturgy and are sealed, it does not mean that you exit the temple as a celestial being. Despite having just constructed heaven on the temple's altars, you immediately exit the temple and begin to tear heaven apart. We all do. And so Brigham Young, for example, uh, was sealed as a father to 
John D. Leaf, for example, who was a prominent missionary and secretary in Nauvoo in the temple, but also a perpetrator of the Mountain Meadows Massacre. You know, Brigham Young considered that. He's like, well, these people are claiming relation to me in heaven, and they're clearly not doing the right thing. So, you know what, they're responsible for themselves. So this idea of perseverance works well in the abstract, but in the particulars of our messy lives, and look, not all of us are perpetrators of mass murder, thankfully, but all of us do have complicated lives, and members of our families, if not ourselves, have experienced um, singlehood and divorce or sin and abuse and many of innumerable things that complicate our views of heaven. Here's a quote from your book. Ultimately, micromanaging the construction of heaven proved not only confusing for church leaders, but spiritually unsatisfying. From Nauvoo to the end of the 19th century, essentially, you can't be sealed to your parents or grandparents. You could do their temple work. They could be baptized for the dead. And once St. George was in place, you could do a proxy endowment for them. But you could not be connected to them as a child. Adoption was the solution. In 1894, after dealing with it and thinking about it and discussing it in depth with other church leaders, Wilford Woodruff stood in general conference and delivered a revelation. He stood up and addressed the temple president, some of whom were the members of the Quorum of the Twelve, and said, look, we are doing the temple wrong, which is a pretty dramatic statement. I mean, can you imagine a church president standing up in general conference and saying that today? We're doing it wrong. What we need to do, and it sounds reasonable to us because it's what we experience, we need to go and seal our parents to their parents and our grandparents to their parents and go on as far as we can go. And the question arises, well, how is this possible? If the links in the chain are what's important, and if we couldn't be sealed to our parents because we didn't know if they would accept the gospel in the next life, because the seals need to persevere, how can we rely on our ancestors to perform that function? And he, in a stroke of perhaps great mercy, declared, this is a direct quote, we can do it because there will be few, if any, who do not accept the gospel. He essentially proclaimed a Mormon universalism. What that did was to say, instead of focusing on creating heaven and micromanaging how it's going to look between believers today, we're going to do massive amounts of ceilings and temple work for the dead. And essentially, we're going to let God figure it out. What a blessing. <laughs> <laughs> because there was some crazy innovation in between where they're trying to themselves solve the problem. Okay, that doesn't make sense. Let's try this. Let's try this. I think in the book, you call this revelation one of the most significant events in the foundation of the restored church. Yeah, I, I think it's more foundational to our modern experience than the manifesto is, frankly. Oh, I do, because it made way for these nuclear families, our forever doctrine that we have now. That's right. That dominates our theology. What it allows is a shift in the 20th century. And I don't think that Wilford Woodruff necessarily would have framed it this way. But you have a shift from Joseph Smith's creation, constructing heaven now, to a situation in the 20th century where heaven um, is a lot more similar to what Protestants believe in. It's something that you can get if you are faithful, right? And then God will figure out everything, all the weird details. And there has been a process of um, essentially liberalization in that cosmology every decade of the 20th century, even to the present, with how we do proxy work, who can be sealed to who. If your ancestor was um, had more than one husband, who do we seal her to? Questions like that are resolved with more and more openness, with more and more liberality throughout the 20th century. In this point in our discussion about Latter-day Saint cosmology, we're going to take a little side road and talk about the priesthood, because it's so important to understanding cosmology. How did the meaning of priesthood change in the early 20th century? 
to answer that, I'm going to go back a little bit. So I mentioned earlier that um, Joseph Smith revealed in 1835, five years after the church was formed, he revealed the Melchizedek and the Aaronic priesthood. So it's clear that conceptions of priesthood are dynamic. The temple liturgy in Nauvoo as well was referred to as the priesthood. We have kings and queens, priests and priestesses, true, but the quorum itself referred to themselves as the priesthood. In my book, I argue that these are different. So you have an ecclesiastical priesthood and a temple priesthood, and or what I call cosmological priesthood. It doesn't really matter. They are viewed as ways of channeling the power of God. Part of Joseph Smith's cosmology from the earliest moment, and this goes back to the question of how did he complicate antebellum Christianity or Orthodox Christianity, it was to say that God still works in history. Miracles still exist. The ecclesiastical priesthood channeled that power um, in the lives of the saints, and the temple liturgy is an endowment of power. It was to channel the power. Let's just unpack that a little bit, because you've used some good terminology there. You mentioned two kinds of priesthoods a cosmological priesthood that you say we use in the temple. There's a lack of terminology differentiating the kinds of priesthoods we use in the church, and that has led to a lot of confusion, I know, on my part, about what goes on in the modern temple ceremony versus what goes on in church on Sunday. There's a a conflation of terms. So you talked about an ecclesia priesthood. What is that? So ecclesia is Greek essentially for a church. I mean, it means other things in Greek, but um, it becomes a term for church. And so ecclesiastical means the church organization. So when you have an ecclesiastical office, you have a position in the church. And so the priesthood early on is ecclesiastical in nature. The church is comprised of ecclesiastical officers, and these are priesthood officers, deacons, teachers, priests, and elders, and they have jobs in the church. It's hard because Joseph Smith uses priesthood language, priesthood terminology around the temple, but it's clearly not serving an ecclesiastical purpose. He's not making priestesses of female initiates as an ecclesiastical office. This is a position in heaven And so that's why I'm making the distinction I am. It's difficult because without understanding that context, you can go back and read these Nauvoo-era documents, these journals, these sermons, and you will see references to priesthood. And, and, And people have come to it from a presentist perspective and said, well, clearly this means that Joseph Smith was, for example, giving women the priesthood by having them participate in in a temple. And by saying that, they are meaning he is giving them an ecclesiastical priesthood or the Melchizedek priesthood, as we would say today. But that is, I would argue, clearly not the case. We have these different uses of priesthood language in church history. The trouble for us is we're coming from a modern perspective where we have very formal and well-established definitions that don't map well onto the past. Uh, I I would argue they don't even really map well currently. No, No, that's true. Five years ago, they don't. (laughs) So so we talked about how the meaning of priesthood has changed in the early 20th century. Okay, so let's go to that. Um, For some technical reasons that I don't think are important, um, you can read about them if you'd like. Priesthood cosmology shifts, and it becomes the nexus for organizing the church, whereas polygamy kind of organized people's lives in the 19th century Utah, priesthood becomes the primary organizational factor um, in the 20th century for the church. And it gets a new definition. So priesthood, instead of being a way to channel the power of God, so for example, you might experience power in the priesthood. In the 19th century, in the 20th century, you start talking about the power of the priesthood. And in fact, If you were to crack open a general handbook of instruction today or the doctrinal core mastery document for seminary or the true to the faith booklet or preach my gospel, it would have a definition of priesthood and it would say priesthood is the power of God. It is the power of God that he used to create the world. That is the catechismal definition for the church today. Um, That is a 20th century definition. For most of the 20th century, priesthood is exclusively 
and cosmologically male. So, for example, in the 60s, you have, uh, in general co conference, in 1965, you have a, an assistant to the 12. It's a, it's a general authority that we don't have today. But he gets up, Elder Krishlow states, uh, priesthood is the power of God presently and purposely denied to women for reasons which he has not revealed. Don't ever, sister, make a pretense to priesthood power. And that was a non-controversial statement to make in 1965. Because that was the status quo at the time. Right. Because cosmologically, priesthood was male, and it had um, this new valence as the power of God. So you alluded to the dynamism of our current lived experience. Well, yeah, the rhetoric dramatically changed five years ago. This is usually associated with a talk given by Elder Oaks. Mm -hmm. So how did it change? So it's clear that Elder Oaks and Elder Ballard and the presidencies of the Relief Society and Young Women in Primary are all wrestling with the role and experience of women in relation to priesthood. And frankly, this has been something that people have been wrestling with for the entirety of the 20th century, but it reached a climax in 2014. There are some interesting antecedents in kind of local discussions or regional discussions, but in 2014, Elder Oaks stands in general conference and delivers uh, this earthquake I'm not dissimilar from when Wilford Woodruff stands up and, and proclaims this new revelation. Elder Oaks changes everything by saying any authority or power that women experience in church is priesthood. Therefore, if a woman is set apart to be a missionary, she is um, wielding priesthood authority. A Relief Society president has priesthood authority to execute her duties. And immediately, the rhetoric of the church shifts. The lesson um, a few months later that was supposed to be taught on to young women on the duties of the priesthood and powers of the priesthood is shift to be about how young women can participate in the work of the priesthood. Friend articles are written about how children can wield priesthood authority, male or female. And uh, frankly, I don't think we're finished. I think we're still experiencing the ramifications from this change. And we're seeing new ways uh, that it is being understood and implemented on the practical level, frankly. Yeah, it's interesting because I went to the temple for the first time 31 years ago to get my endowments. Of course, I'd gone to do baptisms for the dead before that. But one of the temple recommend questions is, do you attend your priesthood meetings? And I always said, I don't have the priesthood. But now that question is actually valid in the way that it's being interpreted in the church. Because when I perform my duties in Relief Society, that's Attending my priesthood meetings, would you say that's right? Um, that appears. So I'm. I am not a church leader, and yeah. I don't get to explicate yeah, normative theology for the church. But that's what it appears to me. Like as an observer, as well as a believer, it appears that we are experiencing priesthood meetings. And what's interesting is that with um, President Nelson's reformatting and reconceptualization of quorums and the two-hour block that he essentially reorganized priesthood quorums to follow the Relief Society pattern. And so not only is Relief Society becoming more priesthood, but priesthood is becoming more Relief Society, I think to the benefit of the saints. More recently, the meaning of priesthood has changed, which brings into question how priesthood functions and the difference between priesthood authority and priesthood power. What are those differences? Um, okay, so I am going to answer that question, and it's going to be my um, observation of the way it's currently framed by church leaders, which may not be how, it's not how it was framed five years ago, and it may not be how it is tomorrow. We'll see. Um, but currently, I believe church leaders are saying it's much like a car. Um, you might have a car that has the power to go 120 miles an hour, but you might not have the authority to go 120 
miles an hour on the freeway. Um, and so priesthood power in the church, I think, um, is being framed that way, where before 2014, male and female church leaders were kind of debating whether or not women could have priesthood authority or priesthood power, and there was some debate and discussion about it. But after 2014, they're saying, no, it's both. You are authorized to perform a duty, and you have this capacity or power to enable you to actually do it. Now, historically, before 2014, it's somewhat more complicated um, because for the 20th century, we had this um, normative priesthood definition um, that excluded women. And so there were questions, especially how do women perform temple ordinances if they don't have priesthood authority or power? How did women in the church perform healing blessings something that was common from the earliest moments of the Restoration until the late 20th century. Under what authority did they do those things? They're questions that are not easy to answer in light of a, an intense focus on um, kind of a male priesthood cosmology that incorporates all of God's power and authority and excludes uh, into priesthood office and excludes everybody else. So having studied the evolution of this priesthood doctrine, you're saying as it's being practiced right now, it takes care of some of these problems that existed? I think, yeah, it's, it's a framework for understanding and explaining um, historical practice um, in a way that is coherent. And I think that's probably part of the reason. I mean, there's lots of reasons that church leaders do things, but I wouldn't be surprised if that were one of the reasons that they made the changes they did. I want to just talk about one more thing, what we're talking about. Sometimes there's not existing vocabulary, and Jonathan has taken the last, what, 10 years or more to research this and put it in a nice little book for us. Personally, I read it twice in preparation for this. You've laid the framework for further discussion on the topic, but you kind of got into studying rituals and the priesthood and this type of subject matter with female ritual healing, which some of our listeners may not be familiar with. But I think it's an important discussion just to take in here at the end, because it was so much a part of our past. And sometimes people wonder what kind of authority was exercised with female ritual healing, and why was that stopped? Okay, that's a, um, a wonderful question. And um, Chris Wright and I spent five, six years working on the healing liturgy together, and it culminated in a paper on female ritual healing. And it is one of the most useful ways of probing conceptions of priesthood and authority and cosmology because it differs so much with the way we do things today. In short, female ritual healing, this is the idea and the practice that women performed healing rituals, the same rituals that men performed from the earliest portions of Kirtland to, um, you know, the late 20th century. Now, there isn't a final cutoff date because there was no final formal end to the practice. It was a complicated declension throughout the 20th century. But um, it's safe to say that for a large portion of our history, it was very common and normal for women to bless and anoint the sick, um, to bless and anoint the afflicted, those who are pregnant, um, children, uh, men, as well as women. And um, they used the same, again, rituals that the men used in the church. And um, if you were to look at the General Handbook of Instructions today, it would say that only men who hold um, a Melchizedek priesthood office can perform a healing ritual. So again, if we're taking that as the basis for our interpretation of history, then someone might say, well, therefore... Women must have had the Melchizedek priesthood or something similar to it to be able to do this work. They're trying to go backwards. Right. right. <laughs> Which you can't do. You, you just can't do that. So it raises the question, then, well, wh by what authority did they do it? Um, did they have priesthood office? And I think it's really important to approach historical 
moments and experiences from a contextual approach. So how were they understood at the time? And uh, I make an argument about different types of authority. So from today's perspective in the church, we are, are making an argument that all authority is God's authority and all authority is priesthood authority. But we have to, I think everybody can also agree that that's only been in the last five years that we've been able to make that argument. So what happened before then? I would argue and do argue, and there's uh, oodles of evidence demonstrating that women were authorized or had authority to participate in the healing liturgy, um, and that authority was not a priesthood office. It was essentially a liturgical authority. So today, a great example would be, for most of the 20th century, women were not allowed to pray in sacrament meeting. For much of the most of church history, so it's only been relatively recent, in the 70s, that women were authorized to pray in sacrament meeting. Now, if you went back to 1965 and said, "What authority do you need to pray in sacrament meeting?" Someone might say, "You might need a priesthood office to do that." And if you were to ask that same question today, Laura, what authority do you need to pray in sacrament meeting? I just need to be baptized. Okay. You have some authority that you didn't have 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. You have that authority today. And I, I say that's liturgical authority. Now, that's a term we don't use, so it's an outside terminology, but it's a descriptive terminology. So women had liturgical authority to perform these rituals, these liturgies, in the church. So in the 20th century, with the rise of this kind of this priesthood cosmology that we talked about that was centered on male priesthood office— the majority of church liturgy was concentrated in priesthood office during this time. So things that weren't priesthood ordinances beforehand, like grave dedication, healing, become priesthood ordinances in mid-20th century. And um, there's a lot of reasons for the, that shift. And if you really are interested in the details, there's hundreds of pages for you to, to, to read through. There is a point in which it is so rare that it becomes forgotten by the majority of the church. And to be frank, the 20th century is also the time of our greatest growth. By the end of the 20th century, the majority of church members are converts or the children of converts and don't have this tie to historical practice. But there are still some interesting bits and pieces. Um, When President Kimball was going in for brain surgery, he asked for a blessing and Elder McConkie came to the hospital to do it, and he asked um, President Kimball's wife, Camilla, to lay on hands with him. That's great. Um, so it, there are bits and pieces that filter to the present, but it, by that time, it's extremely rare. The title of your book is The Power of Godliness. Jonathan, at the conclusion of this interview, what is the power of godliness? So again, I am a historian, and so I take a historical and contextual approach to that term. So the power of godliness is a term that Christians have used for a long time. It goes back to Paul when um, he's talking about um, having, you know, this idea of having the form of godliness, but denying the power thereof or lacking the power thereof. So for Paul, the power of godliness wasn't the power of God. The power of godliness is the power of being godly. So being faithful or righteous essentially, there is a power that comes with living a godly life. Now, as Joseph Smith was wont to do, he takes bits and pieces of the King James Version and endows them with um, expansive meaning or uses them in ways that allows subsequent Latter-day Saints to interpret them in, in useful and interesting ways. And so one of the early revelations on priesthood cosmology talks about its through the ordinances of the high priesthood that the power of godliness is manifest. And that's an interesting little bit of linguistic experimentation or revelation. So you could interpret that many ways, but I think church leaders and members have, at least for the last hundred years, looked at that and said, this is talking about the power of God. It is the ordinances of the priesthood that the power of God is manifest. I like a more complicated and nuanced uh, reading, but I think we have to be aware of and empathetic towards those standard readings that we encounter at church every week. 
Jonathan, why did you write this book? Because it's meaningful to me. That's the short answer. On a fundamental level, I mentioned earlier that uh, if you were to cut me, I'd bleed Mormonism. It's part of who I am. But also, I am captured and enthralled um, by our spiritual progenitors and the lives and experiences they had and led. And so for me, my experience, my lived experience is enriched by an understanding of our past and our systems of authority and cosmology that accounts for their experience. And we make, as church members, we make um, a lot of effort to imagine ourselves and experience ourselves in Micah's hearts of children and fathers being turned towards each other. Now, Joseph Smith had some interesting um, translations of that that um, I think are wildly fascinating and important to the development of our cosmologies. But at the same time, there is a real and important demand upon us to not only do the work of the temple, to go and spend time on a computer and find ancestors and to, to submit names and to do proxy rituals for them. But if it's to mean anything, it, we have to understand each other. And even if that's understanding the first generations of the church and how they saw and did things. Yeah, and it's okay to be different. I. My experience is different than my grandparents, and my experience will certainly be different than my grandchild's. Thank you so much, Jonathan. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Be sure to check out LDSPerspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives Podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.